But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Sintik, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. A couple of years ago, I spent two weeks as a fugitive on the run from the law in Rowlett. The way it worked was Melissa and I were across the lake on Dow Rock. We took a left off of 66 and we turned into the Chiloso parking lot. And right as I pulled into the parking lot, there was a cop that just pointed at me and pulled me over. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I pull over. I had no idea what I did. And he walks up to the window and he said, uh, so do you know what you did? And I said, I really don't. He said, he said, there's actually a no left turn between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. There's a sign right there. Did you see it? And I said, no. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't. And uh, I said, perhaps my situation would change if I said the name's Brian Hartger or Eric Camp to you. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was worth a try. But he said, I've got to give you a ticket. And uh, um, he said, we've got to crack down. We had a fatality here at this intersection recently. So we've got to crack down. Got to give you a ticket. Okay, I understand. So a month later, I get online to pay my ticket, type in my citation number, and it says, no record. So I'm like, what's going on here? So I type it in again, and again, same thing, no record. So I look at my ticket, and it was supposed to have been taken care of two weeks before. So now it expired. So not only was the ticket a hefty price, now I'm thinking like, you know, missed court date and all any late fees, whatever's involved in that. Now my situation just got worse. So now I'm just anxious about the whole thing, the next day, I make a call. I call the Rowlett Municipal Court. Lady answers the phone. I said, ma'am, I said, here's my situation. I'm two weeks late on this ticket. I said, I'm, I got online to try and take care of it, but it keeps telling me that it can't find it. She goes, okay, what's your citation number? So I gave it to her. She goes, hmm, I can't find it either. And then she said, well, what's the date on it? So I gave her the date. And she goes, what time was it at? So I gave her the time. And she goes, hmm. And I'm like, what happened? <laughs> what happened? And she goes, so what happened is the officer that gave you the ticket, he had a glitch with the system during that portion of the day. And so the ticket never went through. And I said, okay, so do I need to actually like come in and bring it, my ticket to you, come into the courthouse and take care of it? 
And she goes, no, it didn't go through. We have no record of it. It doesn't exist. I said, I know. Do I need to bring my ticket <laughs> into you to take care of it? She goes, sir, it's as though it never happened. Today's your lucky day. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? I was like, that is amazing news. I said, you don't understand. Things like this never, ever happened to me. Thank you so much. She's like, sure, sir, I didn't do anything. I was like, yes, you did. This is incredible news. Thank you. Thank you for calling the Rowlett Court. Click. And I'm like, this is amazing. I'm calling Swindle. I'm calling Melissa. I'm calling anybody that'll pick up the phone because there's just this moment of freedom and peace. Why? Well, sometimes it's really nice to know that your burdens are lifted. There's no debt. Paul has been telling you the same thing in the book of Philippians. If I could summarize what he said thus far as we begin to come to an end in this series is, Christian, don't you know who you are? Don't you know the truest thing about you? You're a citizen of an eternal kingdom. The ruler of that kingdom is at work in you, and he is going to bring you safely through to the end. And because you are in him, you are righteous before God. There is no guilt. There is no shame. There's no burden whatsoever. Why? Because you are fully, completely, 100% forgiven. And on any day, every single day, no matter what's going on, no matter how you feel, you can trust that that is certain and solid as concrete. There's no record against you. It doesn't exist. Today's your lucky day. And yet we often forget that, don't we? We forget what is most fundamentally true about who we are. And Paul would say, it's worth putting in the effort to remember those things. Why? Because whenever you remember and understand the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ, when that truth sinks into your heart, it changes the way you live, it changes the way you think, changes the way you feel, changes the way you see the world. That's why he says in verse 1, this encouragement to the Philippians, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in these things. Stand firm in the Lord Jesus. Stand firm in his work. Stand firm in his love. Stand firm in his power. Why? Well, verse 9. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Stand firm in the Lord, so that you might know the God of peace is with you. And he describes that peace in verse 7. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Who doesn't want that? To feel that type of peace and experience a peace that surpasses understanding, which makes the ocean of your heart as smooth as glass. And Paul says that kind of peace is available to you, but it only comes when you stand firm in the Lord. When you learn to stand firm in the Lord each and every day, regardless of whatever it is you're going through. So very simply, what is it that he means when he says to stand firm in the Lord? He means that you remember who you are and you remember who he is in every situation 
in every circumstance. It's when you choose to remember what's true of you in Jesus Christ is much truer than your circumstances, your health, your loneliness, despair, your disappointments, all of it. Stand firm in that truth so that you might know peace, Christian. In our passage this morning, Paul addresses two situations that are not at peace. There's turmoil. And in it, he tells, shows us what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord in order to experience peace. And the two situations, the first is relational turmoil, and the second situation is inner turmoil, anxiety. And so, how do we experience peace in these moments? What does it look like to stand firm in the Lord in relational turmoil and in inner turmoil? Well, the first situation we see in verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we've already said that the church at Philippi was a great church, a great church to belong to. But like any church, it wasn't perfect. And in their case, it expressed itself by the fact that it was a church that was not at peace. Euodia and Syntyche were two women that were at odds with each other. We don't know what the division was over, but we know that it was serious, and we do know a few things. These are prominent women in the church. If you remember in Acts 16, when Paul arrives in Philippi, his first converts were nearly all women. And so it's probably safe to assume that these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, were a part of this core group. They were part of helping to build the church. And Paul says as much in verse 3 when he says, you know, these women labored side by side with me in the gospel. These women are devoted Christians, but they're also divided. And this division is affecting the church to the point where Paul feels the need to address it. So, first, let's recognize the fact that, you know, even the most mature Christians are going to argue and wrong one another. It happens. There's always going to be opportunities for disagreement and division. But one of the truest measures of a church's health is not whether or not there's disagreement. It's whether or not that church pursues peace in the midst of it. And this is why Paul calls one for you, Odean Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. But what else? He also calls the entire church. He calls upon the whole church to pursue peace in verse 3. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And then he goes on and he gives the basis for their pursuit of peace by reminding them that all of their names are written in the book of life. He reminds them of their common standing in the Lord Jesus, that they, all of them, are unified, one body, one family, one church, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Philippians, stand firm in your shared life in Christ. It puts them all to a question. Is what divides you more important than what unites you? And so as they consider this call to peace, what's it mean for the rest of the church? Well, it means they don't take sides. They don't engage in gossip or entertain division. But instead, they pursue peace. They pursue reconciliation. He's urging them to to be a church that chooses to not tolerate that kind of poison and instead to be one that stands firm in the Lord by doing the labor and the hardship 
of finding peace. And then we have Euodia and Syntyche themselves, and he calls for them to agree in the Lord. Notice he doesn't call them to agree. He calls them to agree in the Lord. And there's a difference. The reason they're experiencing division is because each of them are focused on getting the other person to agree with them. You know, so most likely they're standing firm, but they're not standing firm in the Lord. So they're standing firm in their own opinion. They're standing firm in their sense of how right they are. They're standing firm in their sense of how they've been hurt or the ways they've been betrayed. And so all they're really communicating by doing that is that the only way that they will have peace is when the other person agrees with me. And we all know how that normally works out. And instead, Paul urges them to stand firm in the Lord and realize they too have an equal share in his life together. Jesus died for both of them. And they can certainly disagree, but they don't have to declare war on each other. They can disagree, but they don't have to destroy each other. So agreeing in the Lord doesn't mean that they get to a point where they just throw their hands up and say, well, fine. Let's just agree to disagree. And then they just avoid each other. It's much more than that. Agreeing in the Lord is agreeing to relate to one another in the same way that Christ relates to them. Despite their differences or their wrongdoing, to extend the same kindness, the same love, the same compassion that he offers to them. And so the Lord holds no record of wrong against them. So why do they hold one against each other? The Lord pursues a relationship with each of them despite their constant betrayal of him. And so why do they nurse their grudges? This is how they stand firm in the Lord and seek peace. When Christ becomes the most influential factor in their relationship. And one of the, you know, well, just think about that for a second. What a beautiful thing that, that is to see that in the life of a church. Because in our culture and time, you know, seeing two people disagree and still choose to one another, love one another is like seeing a unicorn. Seeing two people that actually, even though they disagree, they still prefer one another. They protect one another in the eyes of others. And they love each other. And they pursue reconciliation and peace. And one of the most challenging things to each of us, I think, is that Jesus says the same thing. And it's one of the most important parts of the Sermon on the Mount that comes from the very beginning. And it's at the very beginning because none of it really matters after what he says. Because if we don't pursue God, or if we pursue God in a certain way, then we will never find him. What's he say? Basically, he says, don't come and worship God if you are at odds with your brother. Don't come and worship the God of peace if you are willfully living in division elsewhere. Don't come to the God of peace and say how much you received that gift if you cannot also extend peace to another. He says instead, be reconciled. Seek peace and then come to God. And if not, then worship falls on deaf ears. So the first question this morning is, do you desire peace? Well, if so, then we have to ask, are you at peace in your relationships? Right now, are you standing firm in the Lord, or are you standing firm in something else? Have you sought peace where there's division in a friendship, where there's division in your marriage, with your children, with a family member? Hear Paul's encouragement. Stand firm in the Lord. Let him be the most influential factor in how you approach that person. Go to them. 
pursue peace and find rest. Second situation. Paul addresses uh, the inner turmoil that we all know. It's the scarlet letter A that we all wear. Anxiety. How can you stand firm in the Lord in the midst of your anxiety, your worry, your fear, and experience a peace that surpasses understanding? You know, honestly, the hard thing about preaching anything on anxiety is that it feels like you're learning to climb and you're standing in front of Mount Everest. Anxiety is a massive, massive problem. They, or Time Magazine uh, did a, famously did a, a, devoted an entire issue of their magazine to the growing pandemic of anxiety in our culture. And it's estimated that a third of Americans struggle with some form of anxiety disorder. So if you think about that in the case of this room, a third of the people here, just if that statistic carried into us, how much anxiety came this morning. And they've also recognized as well that our anxiety shows up in our drinking water. That, you know, as Americans experiencing so much anxiety that all of the anti-anxiety medications are showing up in trace amounts in just regular tap water because our filtration systems don't actually filter that out of wastewater. We literally drink one another's anxiety. And that's not whatsoever casting any sort of negativity on medications. It's necessary in so many cases. But it's remarkable about the effect of anxiety that shows up in simple, small statistics like that that show us that, yeah, it's a Mount Everest of a problem. 62% of college students say they regularly feel overwhelming anxiety. They feel it on a regular basis. As they begin their adult life, 62% of them feel overwhelming anxiety. And it's the number one reason that college students seek university counseling services. 41% of incoming college freshmen say that they feel overwhelming anxiety before they ever begin their classes because of all that it took to be accepted. And we think that we still think wealth will fix it, but it doesn't. Every statistic says anxiety grows with wealth, even down to our kids. Wealthier kids test as more anxious than kids from lower income families. It's a big problem, it's something we all wear. It happens in all sorts of ways. There's family anxiety, financial anxiety, social anxiety, anxiety about anxiety, anxiety about sermons on anxiety. It's all over the place. And it's always there waiting for you. Every time your kids walk out the door, will you see them again? Every cold might be cancer. Every time you make a mistake at work, it might cost you your job this time. It produces all sorts of questions. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to make it? Will I live long enough to see my kids get married? Am I accepted? Is there going to be enough money? Is somebody going to be there for me as I age and take care of me? Anxiety is the devil with 10,000 faces. And then we have verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Some of you are like, does it really say anything? What does it say in the Greek? It says anything. Do not be anxious about anything. And you admit 
you know, you, you probably should, that you want to say, really, Paul? Really, don't be anxious about anything. How about you come out of the clouds and come down into reality? Because have you seen my calendar? Do you know what I have to do? Do you know the activities my kids are involved in? Have you seen my bank account? Do you know what I've been through? Do you know what I have to face on a regular basis? And I think Paul would emphatically say, yeah, absolutely. He's the guy that just told us he lost everything. Lost his job, career, reputation, community, position, status, his home. Lost all of it. And he's writing that to you as he's sitting in prison wondering whether or not he's going to get out alive. There it is. Don't be anxious about anything. Now, how can we connect with Paul for a second? Well, in order to understand, do not be anxious about anything, we have to recognize a couple of of things, I think, to clear away some of the clutter and some of the misunderstandings about what he might be saying. Because behind what he's saying, his posture, his whole perspective on the issue, we have to recognize there's both bad news and there's good news. And the bad news is this. There will always be something in your life to worry about. Always. There will always be something in your life that will cause worry and fear. Once you get through the situation, another one's going to happen. Once you get that job, well, you get financial security, your health goes. Once you get that promotion, you have problems with your kids. You finally get that vacation and it's interrupted by sickness. It's interrupted by a situation at work you didn't see. Your house is going to break. Your car is going to break down. Your health will fail. In this world, things only know how to fall apart. Think about it this way. Paul's writing to people 2,000 years ago telling them not to be anxious. We're anxious now, and in 2,000 years from now, they're going to be anxious then as well. Why? Because they live in this same world we do, and we live in the same world that they did. Anxiety is always going to give you an opportunity to embrace it, to hug it, to bring it close. Now, I know that's not the most encouraging thing that you wanted to hear this morning. But Jesus says the same thing. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So what is Jesus saying? He's like, don't be anxious about tomorrow because you've got plenty of problems today. And you really shouldn't be anxious about it because you're just going to have more problems tomorrow. And then tomorrow when you get there, you'll have more things to worry about about the other thing. You know, it just goes on and on and on. It's not encouraging because we all do still want to believe that happily ever after is possible. But it's not. In the end, this world is broken, it's fading, and it's going to produce an endless supply of problems. Now, here's the good news. The peace that's available to you has nothing to do with any of that. None of it. The peace that Paul is talking about has nothing to do with any of it. The peace he's talking about is not dependent on your calendar. It's not circumstantial. It's not a product of your situation. Whether you're sitting in a prison cell or you're in a season of prosperity, none of it matters. It is not dependent on your situation. How could he say that? We have to make a distinction between the, the material realities of life and the spiritual realities of life. Because our default is to live as though Paul's talking about a peace 
that surpasses understanding? Well, I'm going to feel that peace whenever everything works out how I want it to work. We feel like it's a peace that's dependent on the material realities of life. And so we evidence the fact that our default is that by most of the time when we get in a situation, we pray most for that situation to be fixed more than we actually do peace. Why? Because we believe that the peace that I want to feel in here is a product of everything that's going on out there. And so peace will come when everything falls into place, when my business settles in, whenever I get a promotion, when my bank account is padded, when life is how I want it to be. And so when we believe that, what do we then begin to do? We stand firm. We try to stand firm in our ability to multitask, to plan ahead, to see all the angles. We stand firm in our ability to perform, to get things done. But in the end, simply a hamster wheel because it's just trying to stand firm in your own strength. And sure, going through life that way might get you a reprieve every now and then, but it will not give you peace because you're not standing in the Lord. It's trying to control what cannot be controlled. So we have to recognize the bad news because as long as we feel that peace is a product of those material realities of life, then we're not ever going to experience the peace that Paul is talking about. So what is he talking about? Well, he says that the only way that you can experience this peace that surpasses understanding is when you begin to turn your focus away from those material realities and you begin to focus on spiritual realities. And the only way that can be done is through prayer. I think if Paul, you know, if I could just speak for him for a second, because that's what pastors are supposed to do, right? If you could say, Paul, I don't feel peace, I bet one of the first things he would ask you is do you pray? Do you pray at all? If you want to be anxious in nothing, you have to pray in everything. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that's part of why prayer is so hard. Because in prayer, we have to stop focusing on the material realities of life for a second and focus on something else. But it's so easy to obsess over those material realities and think about them all the time. I need to think about what I need to get done, what needs to happen next, what's next on the list, where I'm supposed to be, where the kids are supposed to be. And we think, you know, if I don't worry about it, then nobody else will. And prayer is where we feel the difference between the material and the spiritual. Because in prayer, it requires us to stop, to let go of our fantasies of control, and to stand firm in something other than our own strength and our own abilities. Now, when Paul talks about this, notice that he doesn't say that we should ignore material realities. He's not a Buddhist. He doesn't say that we should completely forget about it. He actually says, yeah, he says, yeah let your requests be made known to God. He wants to hear your concerns. He wants to hear your worries. He's your father. But God is not your therapist. You can't just tell him everything that's wrong with your life, all the things that you want to see changed, and then to call that prayer. Paul would say, you have to also offer him your thanksgiving. If you want to experience that peace, you have to learn to pray in everything with thanksgiving. But why? Why is thanksgiving so necessary? It's because if you don't, if you really think about it, you're still only just focused on your circumstances. 
You're just offering your request, still only focused on those material realities and just simply asking God to give you what you want or the outcomes to occur that you desire most. But when you add in that layer of thanksgiving, when you add in the regular thanksgiving into your prayer life, it begins to shift your attention away from all the ways that you want God to act and all the things that you want him to do, and you begin to find him and thank him for the things that he's already done. Instead of thinking, God, I want you to be over here. I want you to do this and fix this. And instead, we find the ways that God has acted, the ways that he is with you, and the ways that he is providing for you. Which means that no matter what storm you're in, no matter what your requests are, you choose to find something to thank him for. You choose to thank him for his provision. Choose to thank him for the home you live in, for your daily bread, for the health he's given you, for the fact that you're alive and the breath in your lungs, for your children, for the fact that you aren't destitute and you didn't go hungry yesterday, for your family, for your children, for your church, for your friends, for your salvation, for Christ, for the gift of eternal life. Thanksgiving is where you choose to recognize that God is with you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's always been there. He's always going to be there. And all those things that you used to be so anxious and worried about, he brought you through that. He's going to bring you through this. Why? Because he's with you every single step of the way. And when you do that, that's when the peace that surpasses all understanding begins to fill your heart and mind. And why does it surpass understanding? Why does it surpass understanding our ability to comprehend, as some versions would say? It's because when the world looks in on your circumstances and all that you're going through, it makes no sense that you would have peace. Because it's not about your material realities or your circumstances. That peace is available to all of us. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. That even though the wind and all the waves crash around you, you're walking on water. That's a peace that surpasses understanding. And that's the peace that's offered to us. But Paul says, do you want it? If you want to be anxious about nothing, you have to learn to pray in everything. And that's hard, right? I know it's hard. It's hard for me, which is why I'd like to do something different this upcoming week. You know, I shared back in August that when I got to share with the church, I'd like us to begin to become a more spiritual church. You'd think that's a given, but it's really not. And one of the ways I'd like to do that is in this upcoming week, I think we can begin to put some of this in practice. Paul doesn't say, you know, pray one time and then you're going to get that peace that surpasses understanding. No. If you want to be anxious in nothing, you have to pray in everything. And that's hard for us. We hear a sermon and we're encouraged by that. And then we leave and then we just get swept up back into life again. And we forget. We forget what's true of us. We forget what's true of God. So one of the things I've always wanted to do, and I'm going to do this week, I think it's a good opportunity, is I'm going to send out a devotional every morning. It's just going to have one Bible verse on it. It's going to have a promise. And then something to ponder from that promise. And then we're just going to pray. There's going to be things that you can pray. Ask your requests to God. Make them known. And then we're going to challenge you, or I'll challenge you to thank God for the things in your life. What's on your mind that day? What are you thankful for in that moment? And then we're going to pray for everybody else in this church. And we'll all pray for each other, for those that would choose to engage in it. Because it's so easy as we leave and we forget and we move on. And it's an opportunity to really put what Paul's saying into practice. 
and to see if I feel any different next Sunday of trying my best to stand firm in the Lord each and every day. See if I feel any different than just trying to stand firm in my own strength and in my own abilities. Together, let us seek peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do desire to seek peace. You're the God of peace. And there are so many situations in this church that, uh, that can cause worry and anxiety, and yet there's also situations in this church that you've given people profound peace. Some have had their worst nightmares come true, and yet they feel hope. Others find their health fail, and they find strength in your provision. We ask that you would help us be a church that doesn't look for peace in ways that it can't be found, but we would ultimately find our peace in you. That you're with us, you love us, you care for us. You started a good work in us, and you will not abandon us. You'll see it through to the end. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that can never be revoked or taken away. And even though we might be in hard circumstances, would you meet each person this morning and remind them that in this table comes that promise you will never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Christ our Lord, Christ our life, would you meet us at your table this morning? And we ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen.